17 years ago, less than one month after the horrific attacks of September 11, 2001, weaponized anthrax was sent through the mail supply in a biological attack that stunned an already traumatized nation. The first American died from anthrax infection on October 5, 2001. During the weeks that followed, letters sent through the U.S. postal system containing anthrax were targeted at U.S. media organizations and sitting U.S. senators. In the end, five people were left dead, two U.S. postal workers, a photojournalist from Florida, a New York City hospital worker, and a 95-year-old widow in Connecticut. Over 22 people were hospitalized from exposure. Many dozens more tested positive for anthrax in the months that followed. It was a one-two punch of guttural horror. Americans were already glued to their television sets, watching 24-7 coverage of planes exploding and iconic skyscrapers crumbling. Over and over, we watched thousands perish. But terrorism was still abstract to those removed from the tragedy. The anthrax attacks changed that localizing the fear of terrorism to everyone, even your grandma living in the suburbs of Connecticut. Anyone can get a letter. Anyone could be the next target. With the remains of the World Trade Center still smoldering, the Bush administration made several attempts to connect Saddam Hussein to 9-11. The anthrax attacks gave them the perfect opportunity to piggyback weapons of mass destruction fears on a very real bioweapons attack. They used willing reporters as instruments to tie non-existent bentonite from the anthrax letters to Saddam's non-existent weapons cache. Journalist stenographers in DC were the conduit for government propaganda, hyping up the threat of terrorism. The anthrax attacks justified the fear-mongering that 9-11 was not simply a one-off incident and that terrorism was America's new normal. Not since the Zodiac Killer letters had Americans been subjected to the strange visual threats like the blocked text and short lines that the anthrax letters read. Are you afraid? You die next. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. The letters were almost a parody of an Islamic terrorist. But who was actually behind the attack? Who had the expertise necessary to secretly manufacture and then distribute weaponized anthrax spores? Who had the motive? In this special episode of Media Roots Radio, after conducting extensive research from public documents, TV news archives, wire stories, firsthand interviews, and eyewitness accounts, myself and Robbie Martin will tell the story of the 2001 anthrax attacks. What preceded them? What happened during the investigation? and how this seemingly small event was instrumental in selling the Iraq war, shaping the reality tunnel we live in today. In part one of our investigation, we start with a chronology of the lead up to the attacks and a blow by blow account of how they unfolded. Sandra Bullock, Ben Affleck. I haven't known you that long, but I think something may be wrong with you. <laughs> Forces of Nature, rated PG-13, starts tomorrow everywhere. Our story starts in 1999 during the end of the Bill Clinton presidency. Rudy Giuliani was the mayor of New York City. At the time, Rudy wasn't yet considered a national hero. Other than a few appearances on Saturday Night Live, his fame didn't extend beyond city limits. Rudy's record as mayor of New York was mixed at best. He had an unprecedented 35 successful free speech lawsuits filed against his office, 
we can enhance the programs of the city of New York. And as controversial policies dealing with crime and the homeless heavily polarized the citizens of New York, Rudy still thought very highly of himself, as evident in his weekly AM radio show, live from City Hall with Rudy Giuliani. WABC. And now, ladies and gentlemen, his honor, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Good morning. This is uh, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. A Parkinson's patient once called in to complain that the New York City Health Office refused to honor his Medicaid. And Rudy infamously responded to the man by mercilessly mocking him and his voice live on air. One of Giuliani's proudest moments as mayor was on June 8, 1999, when overseeing and unveiling the New York City Office of Emergency Management command bunker on the 23rd floor of World Trade Center Building Number 7, to the tune of $13 million. Jerome Hauer, was made head of the OEM in 1996 when the agency was launched. As director, who is not only in charge of the WTC-7 command bunker, the entire thing was his brainchild, although this premise has been later disputed by both Jerome Hauer and Rudy Giuliani. The command center was built heavily fortified with bomb-resistant walls that had its own air and water supply. The command center's proximity to the 1993 World Trade Center bombing site was criticized but the plans moved forward regardless. A few months later, sometime in September of 1999, the Office of Emergency Management scheduled a drill simulating a mass casualty event, as they regularly did. The large-scale live exercise was called CitySafe. CitySafe simulated an anthrax attack in the Bronx. Volunteers were going to act as anthrax victims. The U.S. Army was also scheduled to participate. The exercise would have cost over $1 million. However, it was canceled by Jerome Hauer, the director of the Office of Emergency Management, due to an outbreak of West Nile virus. The outbreak resulted in 62 cases of acute encephalitis in the New York area, leaving seven dead. The live-action bioterror drill CitySafe was postponed indefinitely. For the next few weeks, Giuliani orders acting director Hauer to arrange mass chemical spraying on the ground and in the air around areas hit with the West Nile virus to kill mosquitoes. The toxic insecticide they use, malathion, generates extreme controversy and environmental concerns for years to come. One month later, in early October 1999, The New Yorker publishes an article titled, West Nile Mystery. The article cites a CIA analyst to allege that the West Nile virus outbreak was potentially the work of Saddam Hussein. Jerome Hauer responds to the suggestion on October 11th in a CBS News report saying, quote, Nothing indicates that this was anything other than a natural outbreak. Interestingly, one year earlier, Jerome convinced Giuliani to fund studies on a potential West Nile virus outbreak. His career continued to flourish even after it was determined his decision to spray New York City caused more health problems than the West Nile virus itself. Hauer eventually left his post as OEM director on February 1st, 2000 to work in the private sector for Virginia-based defense contractor SAIC's Center for Counterterrorism, Technology and Analysis, also serving dual role as its vice president. A few months later in October 2000, 
Howard takes a job as managing director of Kroll Incorporated. Now it's easy to get started in the right direction, and it's never been more important. Kroll. A multifaceted private security company described by one journalist as a, quote, CIA for Wall Street. One of Kroll Incorporated's security contracts is managing security for the World Trade Center complex. On March 20, 2001, George W. Bush is now president of the United States. The National Enquirer runs a cover story called Bush Daughter's Wild Life, showing a photograph depicting Bush's daughters on the ground, seemingly intoxicated and smoking. It was nothing. I was just hanging out at a bar with some friends, and I got a ticket for underage drinking. You know, I'm very disappointed in you. I have enough things to think about with my new job that I don't need to be worrying about you. I mean, heck, I just got through with my first 100 days, and I got 100 more to go. The National Enquirer is typically known for publishing stories like Hillary Clinton has a brain tumor or Ted Cruz's dad killed Kennedy. But in this instance, the story actually happened to be entirely true. The National Enquirer at the time was published out of Boca Raton, Florida, owned by American Media Inc. American Media Inc. also owns the even more sensationalistic version of the Enquirer, The Sun, published out of the same location. Mid-June 2001, not far from the offices of the Enquirer, future 9-11 hijackers Ahmed Al-Hazni and Zaid Al-Jara visited Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Holy Cross Hospital. Al-Hazni is seen by a doctor for a nasty leg lesion. The doctor is bewildered by the wound and gives Al-Hazni an antibiotic regimen to treat it. He keeps notes of the visit, which are later requested by the FBI. About a week later, to the northeast at Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland, several former U.S. government officials, including former CIA Director James Woolsey, former New York Office of Emergency Management Director Jerome Hauer, and four U.S. journalists, Judith Miller of the New York Times, Lester Rheingold of NPR, Mary Walsh from CBS News, and Jim Miklaseski, former chief Pentagon correspondent for NBC News, all participated in an elaborate bioterror attack simulation called Dark Winter, which included dozens of actors and observers being professionally filmed for fake news broadcasts. On day six of the smallpox epidemic, the White House confirmed that federal government officials and military personnel are being vaccinated. Jointly put out by the Center for Civilian Biodefense Strategies and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the drill simulated a bioterror attack in the form of aerosolized smallpox targeting Oklahoma City. In the simulation, the smallpox turned into a pandemic, killing millions. We don't have sufficient uh, stockpiles for the people in Oklahoma, Georgia, or Pennsylvania, much less for the entire United States population. Well, that certainly doesn't sound encouraging. What do you mean exactly? Angie, it means it could be a very dark winter for America. Sobering. Thank you very much for joining us, Dr. Kavlik. The culprit of the attack in this imaginary scenario was bin Laden's Al-Qaeda network. One of the very last lines of the scripted drill is a fake news broadcast reporting, quote, there is a very high probability that this attack was conducted by either state or a state-sponsored international terrorist organization. End quote. And that, quote, a prominent Iraqi defector is claiming that Iraq arranged the bioweapons attack on the U.S. through intermediaries, end quote. 
This drill is later said to have been extremely influential in the thinking of several key officials, like Scooter Libby and Dick Cheney. The dark winter operation was carried out over two days, from June 22nd to June 23rd, 2001. Fast forward to August 16th, 2001. In Minnesota, FBI agent Harry Samet takes a man named Zacharias Musawi into custody. Earlier that day, they were contacted by a flight instructor, Pan Am International Flight Academy, because of Masawi's suspicious behavior. Masawi wanted to learn only how to take off, not to land. When Samet and other FBI agents examined Masawi's belongings, they became alarmed that he might have terrorist intentions. His belongings included a laptop, two knives, flight manuals for Boeing 747 aircraft, a flight simulator computer program, and a computer disk with information about crop dusting. Over the next 10 days, FBI agents, including Samet and Colleen Rally, sent 70 emails requesting access to search Masawi's room and laptop. Later, on August 28, 2001, the head FBI office responded to the Minnesota branch's request. FBI's National Security Law Unit head, Marion Bowman, nicknamed Spike Bowman, delivered the bad news to Raleigh. Their request for a warrant was rejected. According to statements later made by Samet and Raleigh, they believe if Masawi's belongings had been searched prior to 9-11, the entire plot could have possibly been unraveled. Three months after participating in Operation Dark Winter, on September 4, 2001, New York Times reporter Judith Miller co-authors an article on Pentagon plans to develop a more potent version of weaponized anthrax, titled, U.S. Germ Warfare Research Pushes Treaty Limits. Well, New York Times reporter Judith Miller has been covering the Islamic world for almost 20 years, and she, she provided NBC News with some insight. Judith Miller's main journalistic beat during this period was covering the very secretive U.S. bioweapons program. Back in Minnesota, on September 10, 2001, Harry Samet resorts to reporting a potential hijacking to the FAA in an attempt to get a warrant against Masawi. In an email, he pleads, I am so desperate to get into his computer. I'll take anything. It's the very early morning hours of September 11, 2001, and FEMA teams had already moved equipment into downtown Manhattan the night before to prepare for another bioterror anthrax drill put on by Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management called Tripod 2. The next day, on September 12th, Pier 92 was going to have a drill. It had hundreds of people here from FEMA, from the federal government, from the state, from the state emergency management office, and they were getting ready for a drill for biochemical attack. So that was going to be the place they were going to have the drill. The equipment was already there. It was scheduled for the 12th, but the horrifying events that took place next put Tripod 2 on hold indefinitely. At 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 hits the North Tower of the World Trade Center in Manhattan. The impact occurs between floors 93 and 99. About 15 minutes later, at 9.03 a.m., Flight 175 crashes into the South Tower of the World Trade Center, striking between floors 77 and 85. Holy fuck! Oh my God! 
30 minutes later, at 9.37 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia, American Airlines Flight 77 hits the Pentagon. Back in Manhattan, only one hour after being hit by a plane, at 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapses. Just minutes later, at 10.03 a.m., United Flight 93 crashes into a field near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing everyone on board. The plane's actual destination is unknown. Early reports said it was on the way to Camp David, but the U.S. government says the most likely target was the White House or Capitol building. Less than two hours after the North Tower is hit by a plane, it also collapses at 10.28 a.m. Jerome Hauer was not in his office in the World Trade Center that day. This gave him the opportunity to appear on TV as a so-called terrorism expert to provide context for the attacks as they were unfolding. At 1 p.m., Hauer appears in the CBS studio with Dan Rather. Is it possible that just a plane crash could have collapsed these buildings, or would it have required the sort of prior positioning of other explosives in the building. What do you think? No, I, I, my sense is that just one, the velocity of the plane and the fact that there would have a plane filled with fuel hitting that building uh, that burned, uh, the, the velocity of the plane uh, certainly uh, had an impact on the structure itself. And then the fact that it burned and you had that intense heat uh, probably weakened the structure as well. Uh, and I think it, uh, it was uh, simply the, uh, the planes hitting the buildings and, and causing the collapse. Two hours later, around 3 p.m., Hauer appears on ABC with Peter Jennings. Hauer explains why city government officials, including Rudy Giuliani, abandoned the WTC-7 emergency command bunker during the middle of an ongoing emergency. Office of Emergency Management Office, that bunker, it's a pretty elegant bunker, and nor is it underground. It was second or third floor, right. I think. That's out of operation at the moment. Yeah, my understanding That's is... something you never planned for. Yeah, well, in fact, we did. Uh, oh. The alternate uh, was to go to police headquarters or to another location. Do you know what has happened to it today? Do you know yeah. precisely what's happened? To I it? talked to some folks down there, and my understanding is that, um, I've heard some uh, reports that the, they're concerned about the structural stability of the building, uh, but um, I, I have not been able to confirm that. But as part of our plan, uh, there were backups. Um, you always have black backups mm. in your planning. Sure. On the same program about 20 minutes later, a panelist asks what the U.S. government knew prior to 9-11. All of the discussions we've had raised the question to me, and I know Jerry's been more fully briefed on these national security agencies than in uh, matters than any of us have. How many of these attacks have we known about, and have any of them been on this scale? That's difficult to answer, John, because a lot of that, um, a lot of that material is classified. A lot of that is kept classified. But uh, there clearly are a number of threats that uh, occur in this country uh, almost on a daily basis. Uh, With the OEM command center in WTC7 completely empty, at 5:51 p.m., the entire WTC7 building collapses. Around 9 p.m. in Washington, D.C., Dick Cheney's staff is alerted to start taking Cipro injections to prevent anthrax, 
by former NY City Office of Emergency Management head and current Kroll Inc. director Jerome Hauer. It is still unknown exactly who in the Bush administration, or on Cheney's staff, started taking Cipro, or for how long they continued to take it. At 10 p.m. in Florida, Mike Irish, editor-in-chief for The Sun, wakes up to an alarming phone call from the FBI. They want to speak with his wife, Gloria Irish, a real estate agent. They ask her if she rented an apartment to two men in Florida, Marwan al-Shahi and Hamza al-Ghamdi, two of the hijackers who died in the 9-11 attacks. She tells the FBI she recognizes the names and schedules a follow-up interview with the FBI. The next morning, September 12th, Americans are in a deep state of shock. A neoconservative think tank called the Project for a New American Century, or PNAC, founded by Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan, already had 17 members planted in top positions of the George W. Bush cabinet. The think tank would come to serve as a propaganda mechanism to outhawk the Bush administration itself. On an obscure AM radio program out of D.C., hosted by Milt Rosenberg, two PNAC members, Don Kagan and his son Fred egg on a U.S. military invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq, and even Palestine as a retaliation for 9-11. No, furthermore, where they're located. Um, we know that they have extensive bases in Palestine and Palestinian area. We have to take the war to these people. I think we should hit them immediately. There's How? No to wait. How? Air power? No, I would prefer to see ground forces go into Palestine and hunt out Hezbollah. I would like to see uh, Delta Force raids. I would like to see the full panoply of covert operations, but I would also like to see American ground forces deployed into Palestine. Don Kagan ends the interview by asking, what would have happened if they had anthrax on that plane? I'm, I'm sure in three, four days, everybody, in spite of what happened in New York and Washington, everybody will go back to where we were before mm -hmm. and think, okay, that's, that was a one shot, that's over. But what would have happened if instead of just having a lot of jet fuel on those planes, they had had anthrax facilities. Our question is, how can we stop them from being able to do that? There is no way. Back in New York City, another PNAC member, former CIA director James Woolsey, appears on NBC with Peter Jennings. He directly fingers Iraq for being responsible for 9-11. For the second time today, we have a chance to talk to the former CIA director, James Woolsey. What have you learned and what conclusions, if any, are you coming to this evening? The prime candidate there would have to be, not proven, but would have to be Iraq, I believe. But you have mentioned in this conversation alone three times, and I think you mentioned it yesterday, Iraq. Why do you, yeah. keep, why do you keep bringing up Iraq? Because I think there has started to be some rethinking of the World Trade Center operation of 1993. It may turn out that Saddam made a, a second, and this time successful, try at what he failed uh, to bring off in 1993. Okie dokie. I, I, I want you to explain it, because every time you say something on television these days, people are either sometimes inclined to believe it immediately. The next morning on September 13th, back in D.C., Giuliani, now seen as a heroic figure for his performance on 9-11, speaks to President Bush on a live phone call from the Oval Office. We're taking direction from you, and we're following your example. You've done a terrific job, Mr. President. Well, thanks, Rudy, and thanks, George. Uh, my mindset is this. One, I, I I'm weep and mourn with America. But make no mistake about it, my resolve is steady and strong about uh, winning this war that has been declared on America. It's a new kind of war. Six days later on September 19th, 2001, 
Influential neocon Richard Pearl, PNAC member and advisor to George W. Bush and member of the Office of Special Planning in the Pentagon, goes on CNN to say conventional means to stop future attacks won't be effective. In any case, we mustn't fight the last war over again. The next attack will not be of the same nature as, uh, as this one. It will be entirely different. If we close airports uh, because of what happened uh, uh, a few days ago, uh, we'll discover that that isn't effective because something else will, uh, uh, another route will be chosen. What is the most dangerous route to think about now? Well, I think we have to worry about uh, the use of biological and chemical weapons against water supplies. Okay. The next day on September 20th, 2001, President Bush gets a visit from UK Prime Minister Tony Blair and speaks to the press outlining the importance of America's commitment to a drawn-out war on terror. Missing was the rhetoric of weapons of mass destruction that would later become a household term. Initially, the Bush administration's rhetoric about future terrorism contained no such language. That same day, Bush appoints Tom Ridge head of a brand new government agency designed to prevent terrorism, called the Department of Homeland Security. So tonight I announced the creation of a cabinet-level position, reporting directly to me, the Office of Homeland Security. And tonight, I also announced a distinguished American to lead this effort to strengthen American security, Pennsylvania's Tom Ridge. Two days later, on September 22, 2001, Time magazine runs a compelling story about how some of the 9-11 hijackers may have attempted to rent crop dusters for a potential attack, but the details are vague. The reports were based on eyewitness testimony of James Lester, who worked at an airstrip in Belle Glade, Florida, as a crop duster mechanic. He remembered Muhammad Atta specifically and told reporters they wanted to know the capacity of the airplane, how much would the airplane hold, how much fuel, and how to crank it. He and others at the airfield also described strange behavior from Muhammad Atta, such as Atta trying to climb into the cockpit of a crop duster and start it without permission. The guy kept trying to get in the airplane, and there was nobody there but the ground crew. Everybody had gone, and he, he said that uh, he just had to run him away from the airplane because he kept trying to get up on the wing, get in the want to get in the cockpit and so forth. On the same day, Newsday runs an article about the crop dusters quoting now de facto TV terrorism expert Jerome Hauer. Hauer says there is a new sense of urgency in Washington, D.C. on the bioterrorism issue and intelligence information that, quote, Osama bin Laden wants to acquire these agents and we know he has links to Saddam, and Saddam Hussein has them." End quote. The next day on September 23, 2001, CNN reports, quote, Last week, the FBI imposed a ban on crop dusting, but has since modified it to keep crop dusters away from the metropolitan area. On September 24, 2001, ABC and AP start running similar reports, this time with more detail including claims the hijackers may have intended to disperse anthrax with the crop dusters. Things like anthrax spores are, are easily transported, easily put into a solution that could be uh, dispensed out of a crop duster. The article insinuates that 9-11 was not an isolated event, and there could be more attacks coming via different means. Even though the behavior of Muhammad Atta at the airfield was almost cartoonishly unbelievable, in 2002, an even more ridiculous story comes out involving Atta trying to get a USDA government loan for crop dusters, seemingly confirming these early reports. 
regardless of the fact that the 9-11 attacks did not actually include chemical or biological weapons, fears of bioterrorism started ramping up in the U.S. and in Europe. The next day, on September 25, 2001, local news channels report on terrified Americans stocking up on gas masks and guns. Sold at least uh, 4,000 gas masks. We're down to our last 20. Uh, they're afraid of chemical warfare. Uh, they're afraid of, uh, there's a suspicion of anthrax in the air. That same evening on ABC, they show footage of health professionals, U.S. military and emergency crews preparing for a future anthrax or smallpox attack. An animation is shown illustrating how fast anthrax would disperse in a New York City subway system and how many people it can conceivably kill. The reason it's considered to be a potential, potentially dangerous um, or potential weapon for bio-warfare or bioterrorism is because it's very easy to grow. On the morning of September 26, 2001, the Washington Times publishes an article by Bill Gertz titled, quote, Bin Laden terror group tries to acquire chemical weapons, end quote. The article begins by alleging that Al-Qaeda was trying to acquire sarin nerve gas and anthrax. Quote, Intelligence officials say classified analysis of the types of chemicals and toxins sought by Al-Qaeda indicate the group probably is trying to produce the nerve agent sarin or biological weapons made up of anthrax spores. Larry Johnson, a former State Department counterterrorism official, is also quoted as saying that bin Laden's group had a relationship with the Russian mafia, speculating this as a means as to how Al-Qaeda could acquire such weapons. Fears of terrorism and terrorist attacks weren't just dominating the U.S. narrative, but the U.K. narrative as well. That same day, a major drill went underway in England involving a mock bioterror attack. That evening, the BBC runs a program showing footage of the drill with participants wearing hazmat suits. Dr. David Claridge, a U.K. intelligence analyst, tries to tamp down the hysteria it might generate. I'm skeptical that Al-Qaeda will uh, try to use chemical and biological weapons. They've had a lot of success in the past uh, using more conventional means. They've innovated using conventional means. Uh, there's really no reason for them at this stage to be thinking seriously about using chemical or biological weapons. Two days later on September 28, 2001, 63-year-old Bob Stevens enjoys the view from the top of Chimney Rock Mountain in North Carolina with his wife, Maureen, and daughter, Casey. Bob is a veteran photo editor for The Sun, a tabloid publication of American Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida. Even though he loves his job, he once fancied himself a more serious journalist and would never have pictured himself working at an outlet that peddled an innuendo and gossip like The Sun. But Bob's a self-aware guy, Self-aware enough to know the publication he worked for was a textbook tabloid, but he still took pleasure in the work. In some regards, he found it liberating to deal with lighter content than his previous beat. Originally from the UK, Bob lived with his wife, Maureen, in Latana, Florida, about a one-hour drive from his workplace. Him and his wife traveled often, and at this time they were visiting their daughter, Casey. As Bob drove home from the beautifully scenic Chimney Rock in the late afternoon, he started to feel uncharacteristically tired. He was a pretty physical guy, pretty active for his age, but sightseeing all day seemed to have taken a bit of a toll on his stamina. Bob decided to let his daughter and wife go shopping while he went home to rest. The next morning on September 29th, 
Bob, his wife, and daughter started their two-and-a-half-hour trek to meet Casey's boyfriend. Halfway through the drive, Bob began to shiver and shake. His face appeared bright red. Casey got spooked by her dad's appearance enough to try to take him back home, but he refused. Bob was stubborn. When they arrived at their destination, Casey's boyfriend opened the front door, immediately shocked by how sick Bob looked. After a quick introduction, offered him an empty bed to rest on. But Bob was getting more weak and feverish by the minute. They had had lunch plans together, but he urged his family to go on without him. When they returned a couple hours later, they demanded Bob go to an emergency room. But again, he refused, convinced he had just gotten a mild bug from traveling. After another day of Bob pressing on through family outings, he's relieved for their journey to be over. On October 1st, 2001, Bob wakes up claiming he's feeling better, but he's running a temperature of 101. Oddly enough, his wife registers 102, so she reassures herself maybe they both got the same bug. They decide to take that two-hour trek back home. Maureen watches Bob closely through the drive, making sure he's hydrated. Around the same time, an employee who worked for the same company as Bob in the same building, Ernesto Blanco, took himself to Miami's Cedars Medical Center after becoming extremely ill. Ernesto was a friendly 73-year-old mailroom clerk with a head full of black hair. When he finally sees a doctor, they diagnose him with pneumonia and start to treat it accordingly. However, Ernesto didn't have pneumonia. He had something America hadn't seen a documented case of in over 25 years. Later the same evening, about 60 miles from the hospital Ernesto's being treated at, Bob Stevens and his wife, Maureen, arrive back at their home in Latana, Florida. Bob goes to bed early around 8 p.m. Maureen awakens at 1 a.m. the next morning, October 2nd, 2001, to the sound of Bob violently vomiting in the master bathroom. She finds him kneeling near the toilet, fully dressed, even though she saw him go to bed in his pajamas. She tries to ask Bob questions about his unusual behavior and becomes extremely alarmed when his responses are incoherent and slurred. She decides he needs medical attention immediately. Marine quickly throws on some clothes, carries Bob in the car, and drives furiously towards the nearest hospital. She pulls up to the JFK Medical Center emergency room in Atlantis, Florida at around 2 a.m. Bob is quickly admitted after presenting disorientation, a high fever, and vomiting, unable to speak. At around 5 a.m., with Bob in a stable condition, the doctors tell Maureen, go home. They think he just has a treatable case of meningitis. When Maureen returns at 8 a.m., just three hours later, to her horror, Bob is in a coma with a breathing tube. He suffered a seizure in the middle of the night. Marine waits desperately for the doctors to give her some good news. At 8.30 a.m., infectious diseases specialist Dr. Larry Bush gets a call from the ICU. They tell him they have a 63-year-old man here with apparent meningitis. They explain they need Dr. Bush to get to the fluid test under a microscope. When Dr. Bush arrives to Bob's room around 10 a.m., he sees Marine distraught sitting by his bedside. He takes Bob's vitals while he asks her a series of questions about his recent behavior. That's when he hears a crackling sound in Bob's lungs, which he believes is caused by a major obstruction. Dr. Bush becomes more concerned when he realizes what he's looking at is not meningitis at all, 
but something much more rare. The bacteria has a characteristic rod shape to it, something that he's only seen in medical textbooks before. Something that looks like anthrax bacillus. That same morning, stores around the country unveiled a new book called Germs, co-authored by New York Times reporter Judith Miller. Germs chronicles the history of biowarfare and also proposes that one of the greatest threats we face is bioterrorism from groups like Al-Qaeda, working with countries like Iraq or even Russia. Miller received special access to senior Bush officials for her book, specifically Scooter Libby, who she portrayed as a heroic genius and misunderstood soothsayer. Later that afternoon in Maryland, an Egyptian-born EPA scientist and former Fort Detrick biowarfare researcher, Dr. Ayad Assad, gets a surprise phone call from the FBI. He's requested to appear before them the next day to discuss an anonymous letter from someone claiming to be a former co-worker, accusing him of being a potential bioterrorist. The next day, on October 3, 2001, at JFK Hospital, Bob Stevens' condition is worsening. Maureen continues to sit at his bedside in futility, hoping for a miraculous recovery. Dr. Bush has already convinced Bob has anthrax poisoning but hasn't told Marine yet about his findings. The public has not yet learned about Bob Stevens' contraction of anthrax, yet mounting hysteria over the threat of bioterrorism results in a lengthy U.S. Senate hearing that same day. The Bush administration sends Health and Human Services Director Tommy Thompson instead of counterterrorism czar and bioweapons expert Richard Clark to answer questions before senators. During Bush's first term, Tommy Thompson was widely mocked as the most bumbling member of his cabinet, next to Attorney General John Ashcroft. One Beltway reporter at the time even described him as, quote, a human shield. It's the day of the FBI's interrogation with Egyptian-born Fort Detrick, Maryland scientist Dr. Ayad Assad. During the questioning, they ask him about the anonymous 212-word typed letter they received accusing him of being a, quote, potential biological terrorist with, quote, a vendetta against the U.S. government, and that if anything happens to him, he told his sons to carry on, end quote. Assad vehemently denies the accusations. The accusatory letter describes Assad's personal and professional background in detail, seemingly written by someone who knew him well. He is extremely alarmed and feels he's being framed for a crime he not only didn't commit, but that hadn't even happened yet. It must be emphasized here that Robert Stevens having anthrax at this point is still totally unknown to the public. Satisfied with Assad's answers, the FBI never speaks to him again. The U.S. press doesn't pick up on the story until a few months later, when Assad speaks to the press directly about what happened, and how he thinks he was racially discriminated against and framed by a conspiracy of Islamophobic co-workers. Back at JFK Medical Center on October 4th, 2001, Dr. Larry Bush finally decides to go forward with the anthrax diagnosis, attracting the FBI and CDC. The agencies send units from each field office. The first victim in the anthrax attacks is finally recognized, and Bob Stevens is officially diagnosed with inhalation anthrax poisoning. Marine's reaction to the news is sheer confusion. 
The CDC and FBI asked Maureen to take part in the press conference announcing the diagnosis, and she reluctantly complies. Back in Washington, D.C., the White House press corps suspects the anthrax diagnosis is terrorism-related, but Tommy Thompson tries to dissuade their fears. Strange, considering that just one day earlier, Thompson appeared before a Senate hearing on bioterrorism. This press conference set the tone for how the Bush administration would continue to act towards the anthrax attacks. They would essentially play dumb. Tommy Thompson, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, revealed that a man in Florida has been diagnosed with anthrax. Health officials believe it was inhaled, the first such case in 25 years. Secretary Thompson was quick to reassure. Based on what we know at this point, it appears that it's an isolated case. Explain again how this could happen, uh, for lack of a better word, benignly. That, and what I mean by benignly in this case is that it wasn't a terrorist who, who, uh, who spread the, uh, the, the spores out there. Rare inhaled form of anthrax. Health and Human Services Secretary Tommy Thompson calls it an isolated case and says there was no threat of terrorism. On October 5th, 2001, back in Florida, Bob Stevens' condition deteriorates at an exponential rate and later that day, he dies from inhalation anthrax in the hospital. Stevens becomes the first documented person in the U.S. to die of anthrax infection in the last 25 years, and the first casualty in the 2001 anthrax attacks. Six years later, Maureen Stevens discusses how she pressed on after her husband's shocking death. My name is Maureen Stevens, and... Um, my husband, Robert Stevens, was murdered six years ago on Friday, and uh, we're still trying to find out what happened to him. This is not going to be forgotten, you know, and this is, I'm not packing it away. I keep it sometimes in the front because I will not forget this, you know, what happened to my husband. I just won't, so. I like to have Robert around. I like to have photographs of him. I love talking about him. Not always talking about what happened, but I, I all day long, I mean, I, I'll just, and the kids do, they'll think of some funny thing he did and, you know, come out with it. So that that is, is comforting. That he, and I never feel he's very far away from me anyway. In a continuing contrast to the Bush administration's rush for attribution of the 9-11 attacks, Health and Human Services Director Tommy Thompson tells the press that Stevens' death is an isolated case and that he may have contracted anthrax from livestock while visiting a farm, even though Stevens had done no such thing. Thompson also stresses the death is not terrorism-related and that there's no criminal investigation ensuing. Regardless, U.S. government agencies start consulting with the U.S. military's Fort Detrick, Maryland Bioweapons Labs experts to identify the anthrax spores. On October 6, 2001, back at the Miami Medical Center, Stevens' co-worker, Eddie Blanco, becomes the second confirmed diagnosed case of anthrax exposure. Now to the disturbing news from Boca Raton, Florida. Another person has been exposed to anthrax. A co-worker of the 63-year-old man who died Friday of an extremely rare form of inhaled anthrax. Then over the weekend, another American media company employee, Ernie Blanco, in a hospital for chest pains, tests positive for an anthrax spore in his nose. The hospital he's being treated at already began to administer Cipro, an aggressive antibiotic treatment. 
Although the CDC is notified, it refuses to confirm the anthrax diagnosis for two whole months. The next day on October 7, 2001, FBI and CDC agents descend on American Media Inc.'s property. No hazmat or quarantine procedures are yet done. For now, U.S. government officials interview employees and swab for contamination. They ask Stevens' co-workers if they remember anything unusual in the days leading up to his death. While swabs are being taken to detect anthrax spores around the AMI offices, anthrax is allegedly found on Robert Stevens' computer keyboard. And at the building where both men work, officials find traces of anthrax on a computer keyboard. The FBI closed the newspaper building today. According to law enforcement, they pieced together a likely scenario, they claimed, as to how Stevens contracted the anthrax. Managing editor of The Sun, Joe West, helped paint the picture with an incredible story, later published in The Inquirer itself. He says a letter arrived three weeks earlier to the office, with please forward to Jennifer Lopez written on the envelope. Before he even saw the writing, he found the letter suspicious, because it felt bulky. When Joe picked it up out of the pile, he could feel a cylindrical object inside of it. He told himself, don't open this, and threw it in the trash. Recently hired news assistant Bobby Bender was nearby and noticed the odd letter. As his daughter happened to be a huge J-Lo fan, he asked if he could open it. Joe obliged. As Bobby opened the letter, he describes a cigar tube fell out of it that contained a real cigar. It was accompanied by an empty tin of chewing tobacco, a small empty detergent carton, and a stalker-like handwritten sexually provocative fan letter to Jennifer Lopez. Joe decided at that point he had more important things to do, so he let Bobby amuse himself with the contents. As Bobby walked off to another area of the Sun offices, 13-year-old photo assistant Roz Suss fills in the gaps with his eyewitness account. It was a business-sized sheet of stationery decorated with pink and blue clouds around the edges. It was folded into three sections, and in the middle was a pile of what looked like pink-tinged talcum powder. Sticking out of the powder was a little gold something. I couldn't tell, Roz said. Just then, Bob Stevens came walking from his desk. He was obviously curious about it and held out his hands. Bender delicately transferred the letter from his palms to Bob's hand. Bob walked back to his desk and sat down, holding the letter in his cupped palms over the keyboard of his computer. With his arms bent, just so his face was right over the powder and just inches away from it. He was peering down for several seconds into the letter and the powder and this gold thing sticking out. I heard him say, gee, it looks like a Jewish star. I reached from behind Bob and picked it out of the powder with two fingers. Sure enough, it was a little plastic star of David with a little loop for a string or chain. I threw it in the trash and walked away. I never did see what Bob did with the letter or the powder. I assume he threw it in the trash. The FBI begins to leak information to the press about how Stevens contracted anthrax and why he stuck his face close to a pile of white powder folded inside a handwritten letter by a crazed person. Their explanation was Stevens was nearsighted and would have had to hold the letter up close to read it. As implausible as that may sound, the 13-year-old photo assistant's eyewitness account remains the most comprehensive narrative of Stevens' poisoning. Aside from the detection of microscopic anthrax spores in the office, no physical evidence was ever found of the alleged murder weapon, the letter, or its contents. Even though the Bush admin's own neocon cabal had been obsessed with the concept of bioterrorism, preceding and following 9-11, Bush and the Justice Department kept the CDC in charge of the anthrax investigation. 
not the FBI. Stephen's death is still not treated as a criminal investigation. Around 3 p.m. the next day on October 8, 2001, Attorney General John Ashcroft emphasizes the decision in a press conference. We regard this as an investigation which could become a clear criminal investigation. And we are pursuing this with, uh, with all the dispatch and uh, care that's appropriate, relying on the expertise of the Centers for Disease Control and health authorities. That evening, the U.S. military launches the first wave of military attacks on the sovereign country of Afghanistan, using the rationale of rooting out al-Qaeda. For unstated reasons, the next day, October 9th, 2001, the Bush administration finally has the FBI take over the investigation from the CDC. Now to the home front and those concerns over anthrax in Florida. After one man died from the illness and his co-worker was contaminated, the FBI has taken over the investigation. The anthrax attacks officially become a criminal investigation. As a result of the events that are unfolding here in South Florida, it is now a criminal investigation. While the FBI or Bush cabinet don't refer to it as a terrorist incident, news outlets run wild with speculation anyways, like the ABC News headline from the same day saying, Anthrax scare in Florida has people rushing for treatment and wondering if it's terrorism related. On October 10th, the media starts to report on the hundreds of AMI employees in Florida who are ordered to undergo testing for anthrax. Dr. Gene Malecki, director of the Palm Beach County Health Department, signs a quarantine order for the AMI building and closes it down. Later that day, the UK and US sign an official agreement to fight bioterrorism, even though the US government is still refusing to call the anthrax attack terrorism. Regardless, it's on this day that Tommy Thompson is once again trotted out as spokesperson to meet with their UK counterparts. What we've signed today is an historic agreement between the UK government and the US government to pool our resources, to pool our expertise and our information to make sure that our people are properly protected. The agreement is called, quote, collaboration in improving public health responses to emergencies. According to AP, it is a means to, quote, share information and resources to protect the residents of both countries from the threat of bioterrorism, and that, quote, the pact will ensure the UK and USA's public health systems stand together in protecting the population from acts of bioterrorism. That evening, CNN reports on the ongoing anthrax investigation at the AMI building in Florida. Preliminary results show there are no more traces of anthrax at the immediate American media building in Boca Raton, Florida. As you now know, one man there uh, died last week. The bacteria reportedly found on his computer keyboard. Early the next morning of October 11th, a third employee of the AMI company tests positive for anthrax infection and is sent to the hospital for treatment. So far, the victims have all been people who worked in the same office building in Boca Raton, Florida. At this point in time, the anthrax attacks appeared to be an isolated incident with a single crime scene. Later that evening, George W. Bush speaks from the White House about the threat of bioterrorism for the first time. Contextualized around the story of the 9-11 hijackers attempting to rent crop dusters. You may remember recently there was a lot of discussion about crop dusters. We received knowledge that perhaps an Al-Qaeda operative 
was prepared to use a crop duster to spray a biological weapon or a chemical weapon on American people. And so we responded. We contacted every crop dust uh, location, airports from which crop dusters leave. Now, the American people have got to um, go about their business. We cannot let the terrorists achieve the objective of frightening our nation to the point where we don't, uh, where we don't conduct business, where people don't shop. That's, that's their intention. It's the first time Bush says weapons of mass destruction in a speech. With news about anthrax in Florida dominating headlines for a week, it was clear at this point Bush's use of the phrase weapons of mass destruction was just a metonym for anthrax. On the surface, Bush may have seemed like a bumbling fool, but his neoconservative writers and policymakers were clever. Utilizing this talking point, weapons of mass destruction, as a metonym for anthrax was a neoconservative no-brainer. Members of the Beltway press were already very aware of the neoconservative hawks urging Bush to invade Iraq, only one month after 9-11. You mentioned Iraq. Uh, there's no question that the leader of Iraq is an evil man. After all, he gassed his own people. We know he's been developing weapons of mass destruction. And I think it's in his advantage to, to allow inspectors back in his country to make sure that he's conforming to the agreement he made after uh, he was soundly trounced in the Gulf War. And so we're watching him very carefully. We're watching him carefully. Your follow-up, please. Alarmingly, the Bush administration pivoted from crop dusters and anthrax to weapons of mass destruction to Iraq and Saddam Hussein. October 12th, 2001. Sometime in the afternoon, an innocuous letter addressed to Tom Brokaw is delivered to NBC at the 30 Rock building in New York City. It was opened by a staffer who discovered a fine-grained talcum-like powder accompanied by a letter that read, 9-11-01, this is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. Before the FBI releases the results, an NBC employee who came into contact with the letter tests positive for anthrax poisoning. Across town that same day, New York Times reporter Judith Miller opens another letter addressed to her at her office. The letter contains white powder, which she believed to be anthrax. But after FBI testing, it was proven to be inert and not anthrax. Whoever mailed this letter, however, was aware that real anthrax letters had already been sent in the mail, as the NBC letter arrived that same day. In Ames, Iowa, the university receives a call from the FBI, demanding they destroy their entire Ames strain anthrax database. They comply. Bioweapons expert Francis Boyle believes he knows who ordered the destruction of the samples and thinks it was done to cover up the crime. Clearly, for the FBI to have authorized this was obstruction of justice, a federal crime, said Boyle. That collection should have been preserved and protected as evidence. That's the DNA, the fingerprints right there. Shortly before the destruction of the samples, Boyle reached out to a terrorism expert he knew in the FBI. Marion Spike Bowman. 
He wanted to offer his expertise. Boyle told Bowman the only people who would have had the capability to carry out the attacks were individuals working on a U.S. government anthrax program with access to a high-level biosafety lab. Boyle gave Bowman a full list of names of scientists, contractors, and labs conducting anthrax work for the U.S. government and military. Soon after I informed Bowman of this information, the FBI authorized the destruction of the Ames Cultural Anthrax Database, the professor said. The Ames strain turned out to be the same strain as the spores used in the attacks. Boyle directly fingers FBI agent Spike Bowman as the man who he believes is responsible for ordering the destruction of the anthrax database. But the FBI and University of Iowa officially claim the database was destroyed as a precaution so no other terrorists could use it for future attacks. That evening back in New York, Tom Brokaw soberly reports that the person at NBC who contracted anthrax was one of his own staffers. America strikes back. Anthrax, another infection. This time at NBC News in Rockefeller Plaza. Good evening. Tonight we find ourselves in the unusual and unhappy position of reporting on one of our beloved colleagues, a member of my personal staff who has contracted a cutaneous anthrax infection. That's an infection of the skin that is responding favorably to treatment and her full recovery is expected. Even though the media was heavily covering the anthrax attacks, across town at the mayor's office, Giuliani conducts a press conference saying the attacks are most likely contained. The skin test was positive to anthrax, but since if it is the powder, the powder goes back to September 25, and you don't have any um, additional numbers of people reporting uh, symptoms, the chances that this is contained, according to the CDC, and we just finished a long conference call with them, the chances that this is contained are, are very good. Apparently, his grandstanding after 9-11 was just the beginning, as this would become the first of dozens of press conferences he would conduct, acting as if he was the authority, not the governor or the FBI. The next evening... On October 13th, Rudy Giuliani conducts another press conference, this time telling people not to go to emergency rooms and not to worry about getting checked for anthrax. Just call 911. Across town, NBC continues to cover the anthrax attacks as their offices were a direct target. Welcome back, everybody. It certainly has been a tough day and days for uh, all of us at NBC News because, of course, the press conference that announced yesterday that an NBC News staff member actually had been tested positive for anthrax. In retrospect, it's easy to remember outlets like Fox News or CNN pushing unsubstantiated rumors about Iraq to grease the skids for war. But it was also liberal UK outlets like The Guardian that planted the early seeds for WMD propaganda. On the morning of October 14, 2001, an article appeared in The Guardian stating, American investigators probing anthrax outbreaks in Florida and New York believe they have all the hallmarks of a terrorist attack and have named Iraq as prime suspect as the source of the deadly spores. Their inquiries are adding to what U.S. hawks say is a growing mass of evidence that Saddam Hussein was involved, possibly indirectly, with the September 11th hijackers. If investigators' fears are confirmed and skeptics fear American hawks could be publicizing the claim to press their case for strikes against Iraq, the pressure now building among senior Pentagon and White House officials in Washington for an attack may become irresistible. 
The article relies on whispers of American investigators without actually naming them and serves as a shameful example of the wholesale lies and dangerous disinformation reporters repeated that ultimately resulted in the devastating Iraq war. Later that day, in D.C., an unknown female postal worker at a Brentwood postal facility discovers an envelope filled with white powder in the vicinity of several other people. The incident is reported to management, but the actual letter later vanishes. Fellow employees are understandably apprehensive about news of anthrax-laced letters and await to hear further word from their superiors. At the time, postal workers in the D.C. area are still not warned to seek Cipro or other antibiotic preventative measures for anthrax. The same day, the FBI finally makes public their knowledge about Sun editor Mike Irish's wife, Gloria, renting a Florida apartment to two of the 9-11 hijackers. When the FBI originally questioned Gloria, the anthrax attacks hadn't even happened yet. But still, the bizarre link of Gloria's husband, Mike, being a longtime office mate of Robert Stevens, the first anthrax victim, is written off by the FBI as nothing more than a strange coincidence. The next morning on October 15, 2001, another anthrax letter arrives in Washington, D.C. At 10.30 a.m., a staffer working for Senator Tom Daschle opens a suspicious-looking letter that has the return address of fourth grade Greendale School, Franklin Park, New Jersey. The envelope contains fine grain white powder that appears to float when opened. It's accompanied by a letter that says, You cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. A few hours later, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, accompanied by Capitol Police, stages an impromptu press conference at the Capitol, telling reporters an anthrax-laced letter was delivered to his office. I can't assess the risk level. I think, as the president has said on many occasions, we have to be alert. We have to recognize that the risk is higher than it was a few weeks ago. But we have to live our lives. We have to conduct our business here in the Congress and across this country, and we intend to do that. Thank you all. Lieutenant Dan Nichols explains that a field test was conducted, meaning the test was done on site, which proved the presence of anthrax. The FBI and CDC get involved immediately and treat the Capitol grounds as a crime scene. Yeah, I just talked to Leader Daschle. Uh, his office received a letter, and uh, it had anthrax in it. The letter was field tested, and uh, the there may be some possible link. We have no hard data yet, but it's clear that uh, Mr. Bin Laden is a man who's uh, an evil man. In a featured article that morning, a writer for the Wall Street Journal states of the anthrax mailings, with no evidence whatsoever, that several circumstantial links to Osama bin Laden and his al-Qaeda network are already known, and that bin Laden couldn't have been doing all of this in Afghan caves. The leading supplier suspect has to be Iraq. While subtle at first, these whispers continued throughout the press that somehow Saddam Hussein's government in Iraq was behind the anthrax attacks. That day, questions about Gloria Irish's connection to 9-11 and the anthrax attacks were also raised by the U.S. press. The Washington Post runs the article, 
Sun Editor's Wife Found Rentals for Two Hijackers by Jason Bloom. In it, FBI spokesperson Judy Orajuela reiterates that her renting an apartment to the hijackers and her husband's employment at the AMI building is just a coincidence right now, and I'm sure there will be some sort of follow-up. While the FBI only questioned Gloria about this, the Washington Post found another connection involving her husband. Mike Irish, who records show is a licensed airplane pilot, several years ago was a member of the Civil Air Patrol based at a small plane airport in Lantana, just north of Delray Beach, an official there said. One of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, reportedly rented a plane at that airport to practice flying for three days in August. Robert Stevens, 63, the Sun photo editor who died of anthrax October 5th, also lives in Lantana. But there is no indication whether Irish or Stevens ever crossed paths with Atta. Unbeknownst to the American public, that same day, George Bush himself pressures Robert Mueller of the FBI to find a link between the anthrax mailings and Al-Qaeda, or other Middle Eastern groups. This account was later published in the Daily Mail in 2008. Across the globe, hysteria about bioterrorism leads to real consequences, like in France, who experienced its own anthrax scare. Or it was supposed to be in an envelope, and they went to the hospital. Or in Australia, when they had to evacuate an airport after receiving what was later determined to be an anthrax hoax letter. We've determined that it was just a, a harmless powder substance. Uh, it was tested for uh, biological uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, it is now October 16, 2001, in the early morning hours. The seven-month-old son of an ABC freelance producer tests positive for anthrax poisoning. The baby developed a rash after soon visiting the network's New York City office on September 28th, weeks before the anthrax lace letter arrived at NBC. The source of the actual infection is undetermined. We learned this evening that in fact the child in preliminary tests, both blood and biopsy, has tested positive for cutaneous anthrax. Uh, we do not know for sure that that was contracted through an exposure at ABC News, but we are operating on that assumption at the present time. In Washington, D.C., four postal workers who worked together at Brentwood began to fall ill. But none of the men communicate with each other about their early symptoms. They are Leroy Richmond, 56, Keith McQuay, 53, Thomas Morris Jr., 55, and Joseph Kersine, 47. The same day, the media reports more than 50 anthrax scares around Australia and the American consulate was sent a hoax letter. And I would say to people, don't be alarmed, don't, don't get too concerned about it. On the other hand, you have to be vigilant. Additionally, a UK mail sorting office was evacuated for white powder, suspected to be anthrax. The panic about anthrax became global. Back in New York City, Giuliani continues to gloat. The same day, across the world in Qatar, the organization of the Islamic Conference is being held attended by many Middle Eastern leaders, including Iraq's foreign minister, Naji Sabri Ahmed. When asked to respond to allegations that the Iraqi government is behind the anthrax mailings in the U.S., Ahmed responds that the claim is bullshit. No way that Iraq could have been the source of this anthrax. Bullshit. This is my response. October 17, 2001. AMI employees are ordered to go through a second round of anthrax tests. 
That afternoon, Florida Governor Jeb Bush gives a press conference warning people not to send hoax letters. People that are taking advantage of the fear that exists right now in Florida and in our country by uh, using this as a hoax to try to either have fun doing it or to, to um, because they're, they think it's interesting or for whatever weird motivation they may have, I wanted to tell people that it is against the law in our state. AP reports come in that the anthrax letters were sent through a New Jersey post office. This was only referring to the two letters found so far to NBC and Tom Daschle, now in FBI possession. But as far as at the present time, I'm not worried uh, only because of the two letters that had passed through the processing plant were tested negative. And uh, if they weren't opened, then I really don't want to, you know, get, get excited about that. But if someone tests positive for the anthrax, then, then I will be very concerned about my safety and also my members. Later that day, anthrax is allegedly found at New York Governor George Pataki's office. It's a different type of war, and it requires a different type of response. And part of that response has to be confidence, belief in our country, belief in our security, belief in our way of life, and an unwillingness to let these evil people win. We're not going to do that. You know, our office is open today and functioning. We had to find temporary space. My secretary is working today. Back in D.C., it's determined that over 36 Senate staffers test positive for anthrax three staffers of Russ Feingold, and 31 of Tom Daschle's. Capitol employees also test positive. Uh, there's, uh, there are over 20 individuals in the, in the staff that have uh, the anthrax uh, within their system that tested uh, preliminarily positive. We have provided, uh, at the present time, 1,200 bottles of Cipril. Uh, this is uh, a very serious uh, uh, attempt at anthrax poisoning. In all of the Besides having adjoining offices, Daschle and Feingold shared something else in common. Both men were standing in the way of the USA Patriot Act from quickly passing in the Senate. Feingold was a staunch civil libertarian, and the Patriot Act offended his core sensibilities, whereas Daschle was more centrist and was merely trying to put the brakes on it so Congress actually had time to debate the bill. Together with Leahy, Daschle was embroiled in sometimes heated discussions with Dick Cheney and Attorney General John Ashcroft about the legislation. The White House and Justice Department were pressuring Leahy and Daschle for it to pass, with essentially no debate. All of uh, those who have had this positive uh, nasal swab have been on antibiotics now for some time. And the good news is that uh, everyone will be okay. While tensions mount in the U.S., that same day, another anthrax scare happens thousands of miles away. The AP reports, an anthrax scare in Israel on Wednesday prompted the evacuation of its parliament building, the Knesset. The Israeli opposition leader and a fellow colleague received letters containing an unidentified white powder. Both Knesset members, accompanied by their assistants, were immediately taken to the hospital where they were treated for possible anthrax infection. In Japan, a letter containing white powder suspected to be anthrax arrives at a U.S. consulate in Osaka. Local media also reports that a letter containing white powder was also sent to some TV stations, a military headquarters building, and to the prime minister's office. On October 18, 2001, 
a CBS employee, and a New Jersey postal worker test positive for anthrax poisoning. Acting Governor Donald DeFrancesco called a news conference this afternoon, along with health officials, to announce news no one wants to hear. As you may have heard, one employee has been confirmed as a case of cutaneous or skin anthrax. Two local postal workers who may have come in direct contact with the letters sent to NBC and the U.S. Senate both reported infected lesions on their arms to doctors during the last few days of September. Rudy Giuliani comments again about the ongoing attacks. On October 1st, a woman working at CBS um, began to experience uh, swelling. She um, was treated on October 4th with penicillin. And then on, um, on Friday, as a result of um, the publicity regarding N NBC, uh, she uh, came to, I believe, it was the Department of Health. Right? She, called, she called the Department of Health. And uh, uh, she was put on Cipro, and, more, and tests were taken, including a biopsy. The test came back uh, late last night or early this morning as positive for anthrax. Across town, Dan Rather comments on the anthrax situation at CBS. A letter is not found, but the FBI confirms that anthrax spores are detected in Dan Rather's office. That was a swab. That was a swab, nasal swab. And it came back negative. But even before the swab test came back negative, I don't know who wrote it, but the problem today is not anthrax. Our biggest problem is fear. And we understand and have talked about among ourselves that those who are most afraid are in the most danger. Across the world, bioterror hysteria continues, spreading to Kenya and China. AP reports that, quote, the Kenyan Health Ministry says that white powder and a letter mailed from the United States to a Kenyan businessman has tested positive for anthrax spores that we will know whether it is the anthrax bacillus or anthrax subtilis. These are two subtypes. And until such a time, we know what the subtypes is. Reports from China come in from AP saying, quote, the Chinese foreign affairs spokesman did not say which city the suspicious letters were sent to or which U.S. company received the mail. But he did say that the suspicious materials were contained in Falun Gong propaganda files, end quote. Mid-afternoon, back in D.C., FBI Director Robert Mueller, Homeland Security Director Tom Ridge, and Attorney General John Ashcroft discuss the current state of the anthrax investigation, which they now describe as terrorism. Uh, we in the FBI are pleased this morning to join with Postmaster General, Postmaster General Jack Potter to announce a reward of up to $1 million dollars for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for terrorist acts of mailing anthrax. After the press conference, a specialized alarm that detects chemical and biological agents goes off in the Oval Office. According to a book by Jane Mayer, Cheney believes he is infected with anthrax and that this was a direct assassination attempt on his life. This incident has not been confirmed outside of Mayer's book. Perhaps the most pernicious piece of Iraq war propaganda was uttered by Senator John McCain 
on The Late Show with David Letterman later that night. When discussing the Bush administration's response to 9-11, after telling Letterman that, quote, the second stage might be Iraq, McCain continued unprompted. Uh, there is some indication, and I don't have the conclusions, but some of this anthrax may, and I emphasize may have come from, come from Iraq. Oh, is that right? If that may be the case, then that, that's when some tough decisions are going to have to be made. The American public was never privy to who was the source of this innuendo, but by all accounts, the information was being seeded into the public consciousness by somebody who had a bone to pick with Iraq. The next day on October 19th, 2001, the third anthrax-laced letter arrives at the New York Post. It had no return address. The contents of the letter read, 9-11-01, this is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America, death to Israel. Allah is great. Uh, you know, we can only go on the information that we have that the, uh, as we said, the FBI and the CDC um, assure us that there's no health risk. Um, they found no evidence of uh, anthrax spores within the building. Luckily for employees, there were no known infections among them. Unlike ABC, NBC, the Capitol, and Senate building, whatever damage was done by opening this particular letter appeared undetectable. Was the anthrax in this letter the same weaponized form found in the others? The New York Post, like the Weekly Standard and Wall Street Journal, employed many PNAC members as writers. All three outlets would continue to put out disinformation linking Saddam Hussein in Iraq to the ongoing anthrax mailings. Leroy Richmond is the first of the four postal workers with symptoms serious enough to seek medical attention. Later that day, he checks into a hospital, accompanied by his wife Susan in Woodbridge, Virginia. His condition alarmed the intern on staff, specifically the pain he felt on the back of his neck, and he's told to go to the nearest emergency room. His wife Susan books it down Route 295 and arrives at Inova Fairfax Hospital. After sitting in the waiting room for over four hours, Dr. Cecil Murphy appears. After a quick exam, Murphy didn't notice any obvious symptoms, but Richmond stressed he knew his body and that something was wrong. Richmond's workplace, the Brentwood Post Office, came up in discussion. Dr. Murphy had heard about the anthrax letters in the news, but the possibility of him being infected didn't seriously cross her mind. Since the x-ray didn't show anything noteworthy, she orders a CAT scan of his chest. As Murphy runs more tests, Richmond's condition worsens. He's developing a fever. After she finds blood in his urine, Dr. Murphy has a hunch. She starts giving Richmond intravenous Cipro. Her quick thinking and intuition saved Richmond's life. That evening, the CAT scan confirms her worst fears, blood in the lymph nodes. She relays the bad news. Mr. Richmond, your CT shows swollen lymph nodes in your chest. That could mean anthrax. However, U.S. postal workers haven't been told to start taking Cipro, even after AP runs a story alleging that Americans are frantically going to Mexico to buy Cipro over the counter out of fear of anthrax infection. Around this time, the CDC releases a video called A Clinician's Guide to Anthrax, featuring CGI graphics, synthesizer music, and a panel of CDC experts discussing what to do in case of emergency or exposure. 
That evening, Diane Sawyer reports that the U.S. government is preparing the public for potential biological or anthrax attacks, and has a guest on demonstrating how to wear protective gloves while opening the mail. Gloves. Gloves do work, but here's the caveat. When you put on gloves, remember, they become a second piece of skin. So if you walk around the house with gloves like this and you touch everything, from anthrax to everything else, you're just transmitting germs. But if you need to handle something, and let's just pretend for a second that this now represents anthrax, you have to know how to take off your gloves. And that means not going up and touching your skin, but touching the gloves like this, and then, in a part that isn't contaminated, turning them literally inside out. Now, they are contaminated. You either drop them where they are and walk away. The number one rule when you're near something contaminated is distance yourself and then call the authorities. Because I'm thinking of postal workers here, of course. Exactly. Early in the morning, on October 20th, 2001, at 1 a.m., Leroy Richmond is admitted to the intensive care unit of Fairfax Hospital. A few hours later, back in D.C., anthrax is detected in the congressional mailroom during a sweep. This morning, after doing uh, the environmental sampling around the Capitol complex, it was discovered that a sample came back from the Ford House Office Building mailroom as positive for anthrax. The full extent of how far the anthrax spread from the DASHA letter wasn't known yet. But at this point, it was clear anthrax might have spread to multiple unforeseen locations. There was virtually no way to know when and where it would show up next. At this point, it is clear the Bush administration is using the attacks to its full advantage. George W. Bush releases an entire radio address about the anthrax mailings the same morning, tying them to the 9-11 attacks. America has now confirmed several different cases of anthrax exposure in Florida, New York, New Jersey, and Washington, D.C. I commend the many health and law enforcement officials who have worked quickly to identify people who may have been exposed and provide preventative antibiotic treatment. Their quick work has no doubt saved lives. We do not yet know who sent anthrax to the United States Capitol or several different media organizations. We do know that anyone who deliberately delivers anthrax is engaged in a crime and an act of terror, a hateful attempt to harm innocent people and frighten our citizens. If we do not stand against terrorism now, every civilized nation will at some point be its target. We will defeat the terrorists by destroying their network wherever it is found. We will also defeat the terrorists by building an enduring prosperity that promises more opportunity and better lives for all the world's people. Later that afternoon, to his surprise, Leroy Richmond is officially diagnosed with anthrax. Until this diagnosis, he strongly believed he just had pneumonia. The doctor comes to me all excitedly and she says, you have it, you have it, you have anthrax, you have anthrax. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I can't possibly have anthrax. I never handled letter mail. I never handled or seen any powdery substance. No, doc, this is pneumonia. I'm coughing up phlegm. I'm going through the whole scenario what's happening to me. And I'm, I've diagnosed for myself, this is pneumonia. This can't be anthrax. Because in, in my mind, I'm saying people don't live from anthrax. Around 3 p.m., Richmond's co-worker, Keith McHugh, admits himself to the same Kaiser Hospital as Leroy. When McHugh answers Brentwood after a series of questions, he is immediately seen. Dr. Susan Macha already happened to be treating Leroy, the other postal worker, anthrax victim. Because of her immediate suspicions, 
She puts McHugh on intravenous Cipro treatments, but doesn't yet tell him she thinks he has anthrax poisoning. In Clinton, Maryland, another Brentwood postal worker, Joseph Kersine Jr. and his wife Celeste are attending evening mass at St. John's Evangelist Catholic Church. Joseph collapses during the procession. Early the next morning on October 21st, 2001, Brentwood postal worker Keith McQuee gets a visit from Dr. Susan Matcha with shocking news. Do you know what anthrax is? She asks. Hell no, he answered. Do you want to hear the good news first or the bad news? Let me hear the bad news first, he said. You've inhaled anthrax spores. It's a fatal disease, but we think we got it in time. It is now being widely reported that two Brentwood postal workers are infected with anthrax, but their names have not been disclosed. Even though the Bush administration was warned to start taking Cipro as early as 9-11-2001, postal workers were still not given a warning to get on Cipro by management, the CDC, or any other government agency. Our problem is this. Even though postal officials acknowledge that the hazard of contracting anthrax exists in the mail system, they have not issued any statements as to how they are going to protect the workers. It is now that we arrive at the tragic tale of Thomas Morris Jr., the fourth postal worker to get sick in this story. Morris Jr. wakes up the same morning feeling very ill, finding it difficult to breathe. Having already visited a doctor suspecting anthrax infection two days prior, Morris put the timeline together in his head. How he got it, when, and where. His breathing becomes so shallow he calls 911 at around 2 p.m. My breathing is very, very lab labored. Uh, How old are you? Um, 55. Uh, I, I don't know if I have been, but... I suspect that I might have been exposed to anthrax. Uh, you know when or what? Uh, it was last, uh, what, last Saturday, a week ago, last Saturday morning at work. Work for the postal service. I've been to the doctor, uh, went to Dr. Thursday, he took a culture, but he never got back to me with the results. I guess there was some hang up over the weekend, I'm not sure. But in the meantime, I. Yeah, I went through an achiness and headachiness started Tuesday. And now, I'm having difficulty breathing. And just to move any, any distance, I feel like I'm going to pass out. I'm here at the house. My wife is here. I'm on the couch. Okay, so you're aching, dizzy? No, no, no. Not now. Not now? But I am... My breathing is lab labored. My chest feels constricted. Um, I am getting here, but I, to get up and walk and what have you, it feels like I might just pass out if I stay up too long. So I'm just saying. Okay, which post office do you work at? This is the post office downtown on Brentwood Road, Washington, D.C. post office. Woman found the envelope. And I was in the facility, facility. It had powder in it. They never let us know whether the thing had was anthrax or not. They never uh, treated the people who were around this particular individual and, and the supervisor who handled the envelope. Uh, so I don't know if it is or not. I'm just 
I've never been able to find out. I've been calling, but the symptoms that I've had are what it was was uh, described to me in a letter that they put out, almost to the T. Except I haven't had any vomiting until just a few minutes ago. I'm not bleeding, and I don't have diarrhea. The doctor thought that it was just a virus or something. Mm-hmm. So we went with that, and I was taking Tylenol for the achiness. But the shortness of the breath now, I don't know. That's 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 consistent with the with the anthrax. Okay, you weren't the one that handled the envelope. It was somebody else. No, I didn't handle it, but I was in the facility. Okay, and do you know what they did with the envelope? I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I couldn't even find out if if the stuff was or wasn't. Morris arrives at the Greater South Hospital in Washington, D.C. at around 3. Less than six hours later, at 8.45 p.m., he's declared dead. 55-year-old Thomas Morris Jr. officially becomes the third anthrax fatality in the string of deadly attacks. AP reports that postal workers at the Brentwood facility are now ordered to be tested for anthrax exposure. Not far away in Maryland, Joseph Kersing was feeling even worse than he did the night before after fainting at church. Tired, nauseated, and perspiring beads of sweat his wife Celeste described were as big as half dollars. She drives him to the hospital, but doctors reassure him he's only suffering from dehydration and gastrointestinal problems, and he's sent home. That evening, echoing statements by John McCain, Senator Joe Lieberman on Meet the Press says, The stuff that's being sent out, including the stuff that went to Tom Daschle's office, is significantly refined anthrax. So it says to me that there's either a significant amount of money behind this, or this is state-sponsored, or this is stuff that was stolen from the former Soviet program. The subtext here was that Iraq or Al-Qaeda, or possibly the two working together in concert with Russia, were behind the anthrax mailings. October 22nd, 2001, around 9 a.m., Celeste Kersin, the wife of Brentwood postal worker Joseph, calls 911 from their home in Clinton, Maryland. She explains to the operator that just a day earlier, she took her husband to the hospital but doctors brushed off his symptoms. Things have gotten much worse since. The transcript of Celeste's 911 call is as follows. He's breathing just constantly. He's got asthma, and he's just constantly breathing hard and fast. How long was it that he, um, I don't know. I fell asleep. I was asleep, and I just looked up, and he was laying out in the bathroom there. Is he able to talk to you normally? No, he's breathing so hard. Sometimes he won't say anything for a period of time, but yes, he's talking. Okay, is he able to talk in a complete sentence? No, he's just been answering my questions. Celeste practically drags Joseph to the car and takes him back to the hospital. Once they arrive, Dr. Venkat Mani, the hospital's head of infectious diseases, asks to look at Joseph's test results. Once he looks at Kersin's blood under a microscope, he immediately knows it's late-stage anthrax infection with a low chance of recovery. Dr. Van Kat was later quoted as saying, There were so many organisms on the smear that we could directly see it. When you have a person with blood infection and you see the bacteria on the blood smear, 
the patient will almost never survive. By that stage, the bacteria are winning the battle. Six hours after being brought to the hospital, 47-year-old Joseph Kersine Jr. is the second postal worker from Brentwood in D.C. to die from inhalation anthrax. The anthrax attacks have now claimed their third victim. We are still undergoing final tests to determine absolutely if these two deaths were related to anthrax exposure. Their cause of death to date is unclear, but I'll tell you what is very clear. It is very clear that their symptoms are suspicious and their deaths are likely due to anthrax. On the morning of October 23, 2001, Tariq Aziz, Deputy Iraqi Prime Minister, sits down for an interview with AP and staunchly denies Iraq having any ties to the anthrax attacks. Anthrax uh, is existing in many, many countries in the world, including the United States. The United States is the major producer of anthrax. So connecting uh, Iraq with those uh, events is uh, sinister and it's baseless. Iraq has nothing to do with all what happened in America since the 11th of September till now. When the Americans want to attack Iraq, they will attack Iraq, you see, for their own agenda. Not because Iraq has not done this or Iraq has not done that. They want to get rid of this government because it is an independent, honest government. That's it. Back in D.C., anthrax is reportedly found in the White House mail system, not in the White House itself, but in an off-site location. Early this afternoon, a positive anthrax culture was found at the remote mail site that serves the White House. This is a delivery site that is located some miles away from the White House that handles all White House mail. Test results showed it to be positive for a small concentration of anthrax. Later, in Miami, Florida, Ernesto Blanco, the first anthrax victim to be treated, finally recovers and leaves the hospital. His family leaves angry and confused that the CDC refused to diagnose him with anthrax while he was fighting for his life. Blanco's family suspects the government has political reasons for keeping his diagnosis secret. That evening, from the White House, Bush makes a vague statement seemingly linking 9-11 with anthrax and al-Qaeda to the attacks. First of all, I don't have anthrax. And uh, the... Um, it's hard for Americans to imagine how evil... Uh, the people are who are doing this. We're having to adjust our thinking. We're a kind nation, we're a compassionate nation, we're a nation of strong values, and we value life. And we're learning people in this world, you know, want to terrorize our country by trying to take life. Uh, they won't succeed. This country is too strong to allow terrorists to affect our to affect the lives of our citizens. I understand people are concerned, and they should be, but they need to know our government is doing everything we possibly can to protect the lives of our citizens, everything. There's no question that anybody who would mail anthrax with the attempt to harm American citizens is a terrorist. 
And there's no question that Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization, so it wouldn't put it past me that they are, uh, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that, they're, uh, that, they, that uh, they're involved with it. At an event the next morning, on October 24, 2001, Robert Mueller and the U.S. Postal Chief speak on the anthrax attacks. Mueller, ultimately in charge of the FBI investigation, stresses it's too early to draw any conclusions. At this point, it is not clear if the few confirmed anthrax exposures were motivated by organized terrorism. But these attacks were clearly meant to terrorize a country already on the edge. A little later, a few miles away at the White House, Ari Fleischer says the FBI is now focusing on labs around the U.S., but doesn't mention whether they are government or private facilities. There is a suspicion that this is connected to international terrorists. Um, having said that, the, uh, the investigators also do not rule out that it could be something domestic, that it could be a lone person operating, doing this. Later that afternoon, in Glen Burnie, Maryland, Bush brings up the anthrax attacks during a walking tour of a packaging factory. AP reports, quote, referring to the recent mailings of anthrax, Bush said the September 11th attack launched on the U.S. is still continuing. Except for Pearl Harbor, we've, we've never really been hit before. And yet on September 11th, this great land came under attack. And it's still under attack as we speak. Bush again implies the anthrax mailings are the second stage of the 9-11 attacks. Anybody who puts poison in mail is a terrorist. Anybody who tries to affect the lives of our good citizen is evil. And I'm oftentimes asked by our friends in the press, do I know if there's a direct connection between what took place on September the 11th and what's happening today? I have no direct evidence, but there are some links. Both series of actions are motivated by evil and hate. Both series of actions are meant to uh, disrupt Americans' way of life. Both series of actions are an attack on our homeland, and both series of actions will not stand. That evening, the controversial 342-page long USA Patriot Act passes the House overwhelmingly. The next morning on October 25th, 2001, a Guardian editorial by Matthew Engel comments on the schizophrenic attitude of the Bush administration in regards to the anthrax attacks. Engel writes, Those in charge have compounded the problems by sending out confused messages. Was the anthrax weapons grade or not? Should Americans be alarmed or relaxed? Has President Bush himself been tested? The signals keep changing. Mr. Thompson suggested early on that Bob Stevens, the first anthrax victim, might have drunk from an infected stream. Later in the afternoon, David Hose, who works at the State Department Mail Annex in Sterling, Virginia, is hospitalized with anthrax infection. The same evening, Homeland Security head Tom Ridge lets the public know some important but revealing details about the attacks by describing to the press that the anthrax spores found in Tom Daschle's letter were breathable, a.k.a. weaponized. It shows that the anthrax in the letter received in Senator Tom Daschle's office has some different characteristics. It is highly concentrated, 
it is pure and the spores are smaller therefore they're more dangerous because they can be more easily absorbed in a person's respiratory system this is an indication that a government with a sophisticated bioweapons program produced the material it is at this point that the FBI knows internally that the anthrax strain found in the letters is the U.S.-made Ames strain. Yet Tom Ridge, Robert Mueller, and President Bush himself continue to act coy about its origins. Across town, the USA Patriot Act passes the Senate. The only senator to cast a no vote was Russ Feingold. While he was not directly targeted with an anthrax letter, his staffers did get infected. October 26th, 2001. After very little protest, the infamous Patriot Act is signed into law by President Bush after being rushed through the House and the Senate while the Senate building is closed for decontamination. A lot of um, our Democratic counterparts, and they were crammed into this office on the floor writing on yellow tablets and cutting and pasting, and I said, you what? The committee had re reported out the USA Patriot Act, and they were getting it ready, the bill to drop for the floor, as a bipartisan approach. So they were cutting, pasting, taping, but that was how it was done during that week and a half we were facing anthrax. Leahy and Daschle were the two most vocal senators asking for more time to deliberate the bill. In a strange twist, those who stood in the way of a quick passage of the Patriot Act were also directly targeted with anthrax letters, less than two weeks apart. Whoever sent them intended for them to arrive at the same time, but the letters sent to Leahy got lost in the mail, rerouted, and delayed. There was virtually no press coverage of this inner conflict preventing the fast track of the Patriot Act. So if it was a suspected motivation behind the targeting of the senators, the killer likely didn't hear about it on the news. Upon signing the Patriot Act, George Bush said, Current statutes deal more severely with drug traffickers than terrorists. That changes today. We're enacting new and harsh penalties for biological weapons. Bush also mentions how the two postal workers who died were heroes who served in the line of duty. The terrorists cannot be reasoned with. Witness the recent anthrax attacks through our postal service. Our country is grateful for the courage the postal service has shown during these difficult times. We mourn the loss of the lives of Thomas Morris and Joseph Kersin, postal workers who died in the line of duty, and our prayers go to their loved ones. I want to assure postal workers that our government is testing more than 200 postal facilities along the entire Eastern Corridor, and we will move quickly to treat and protect workers where positive exposures are found. But one thing is for certain. These terrorists must be pursued, they must be defeated, and they must be brought to justice. Yet again, his administration did not instruct postal workers to take Cipro when it could have saved their lives. That same day, another anthrax scare hits a U.S. government facility, this time at the CIA. AP reports that, quote, 
Trace amounts of the bacteria were found in a mailroom at the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency. A CIA official, who did not wish to be identified, said the amount of anthrax detected was, quote, medically insignificant, unquote, but added that the main CIA building would be closed on Friday for further testing. While anthrax hysteria continues to build, a story in the Telegraph from the same day slips through the cracks. Former CIA director and PNAC member James Woolsey is reported to be working for Paul Wolfowitz. The Telegraph reports, quote, James Woolsey, a former director of the CIA, ambassador, and Pentagon official who now describes himself as a private citizen, is the man entrusted with investigating Iraqi involvement in the September 11th attacks and anthrax outbreaks. Administration sources have said his trip was funded and approved by Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Defense Secretary. Such is the sensitivity of the Iraq issue, Mr. Woolsey will make no comment about the exact nature of his brief. He told the Telegraph, quote, I was in London, and that's it. That evening, ABC runs the first of several programs alleging several high-placed sources at Fort Detrick, Maryland, and elsewhere have told them that the anthrax samples contained bentonite. ABC's Brian Ross claims this implicates Saddam Hussein's biological warfare program, as bentonite is allegedly a trademark of their anthrax manufacturing process. ABC continues running these reports for the next three days, until October 29th. The next morning of October 27, 2001, then-freshman Congressman, now Vice President Mike Pence, who once hosted an AM radio talk show describing himself as Rush Limbaugh on decaf, conducts a press conference outside the Capitol proclaiming revenge and biblical-style justice to whoever conducted the anthrax attacks. His family, with news cameras in tow, gets tested for anthrax at the hospital after it is allegedly found in his office. One of the three congressional offices where anthrax has shown up is that of Hoosier Mike Pence. Pence's family and staff were tested for exposure today. He believes the trace amounts of anthrax probably got there by someone distributing the mail. Along with his kids and wife Karen, Pence was tested and given a 60-day supply of the antibiotic Cipro. He reassured constituents that he and his staff are fine, but he had a stern message for those responsible. To the people who did this, wherever they are, our message to you is simply this. You have failed again. You have failed to reach your target. And you have failed in a much more profound way. For by this act, you have further steeled the resolve of every member of this national government whose duty it is to either bring you to justice or seal your fate. Anyone who has visited Pence's D.C. office since October 12th is asked to call his field office in Anderson. No news outlets questioned his grandstanding or odd performance of going to the hospital with his family. And unlike Senators Daschle and Leahy and their press appearances, Mike Pence alluded to the anthrax attacks being connected to the larger war on terror. Across town from Pence's strange press conference, there is a funeral service being held for Joseph Kersine Jr., the second Brentwood postal worker to die from anthrax. In a symbolic gesture, a caravan of USPS trucks 
follow the funeral procession. The next morning, October 28, 2001, at a press conference, seemingly anticipating something akin to a pandemic, a U.S. federal health official said the government could have enough anthrax vaccines for everyone in the country within 6 to 12 months. That's an important point because you know there's been a lot of concern about if we get an even bigger event, will we run out of ciprofloxacin? This now really broadens the spectrum because not only is doxycycline good against the anthrax, but also the common generic penicillins are. So now we have a considerable range of options for antibiotics. The Weekly Standard, founded by PNAC neocon Bill Kristol, publishes two editorials pushing for the Iraq War the next day, October 29th. One of them is written by Bill Kristol and Robert Kagan, titled The Gathering Storm. It links Saddam Hussein to not just the 9-11 attacks, but also to the anthrax mailings. A couple weeks ago in the Weekly Standard, you and your colleague Bill Crystal began the editorial. It's called The Gathering Storm This Way. Here's a prediction. When all is said and done, the conflict in Afghanistan will be the war on terrorism to what North Africa was to World War II. Uh, I think this war is going to go to Iraq at some point, uh, maybe not uh, this year, but eventually. I think the evidence that Iraq may have been involved in the, uh, in the attack and certainly involved with al-Qaeda and bin Laden is growing, and we may find more of it. I think it's essential that we do ultimately take on Iraq because Saddam Hussein uh, is every bit an enemy of the United States as Osama bin Laden, and he possesses uh, weapons of mass destruction, biological. Another editorial written by PNAC director Gary Schmidt is titled, Why Iraq? It also attempts to link Saddam Hussein to the anthrax attacks. Even though there is absolutely no evidence linking the two, Crystal's weekly standard made this a reoccurring theme for months to come. In New York City, a 61-year-old Vietnamese hospital employee named Kathy Nguyen suddenly started to feel short of breath. She ran into her landlord, Dave Cruz, in the courtyard of their Bronx apartment. She was frantic. It hurts to breathe, she gasped. He immediately drove her to the hospital where she worked at. Before she left, she tried to pay him in advance for rent in case the hospital stay was long. That's just the kind of person she was. She stayed under intensive care for the next 48 hours, with her symptoms steadily worsening. Still, no one considered anthrax as the possible cause. While Kathy lay in a New York hospital bed, under a cloak of secrecy in D.C., Vice President Dick Cheney whisks himself away to a secure and undisclosed location. Some journalists at the time deduced he was taken to a secure bunker from the Truman or Eisenhower era, although to this day, nobody knows for sure. Vice President Cheney had been moved to uh, another undisclosed location last night. No. As somebody who's worked at the White House, what's your reaction to that? Well, I don't, I mean, then I can only assume there's a, there's a great deal going on that we don't understand, uh, that, there, that there must be intelligent information to explain this, because there's something odd. Uh, it, it makes sense, and we have a long history of trying to keep the president and the vice president in two different locations, uh, is, is to me indicates uh, that there must be some, some specific threat out there that they're trying to protect the vice president from. Cheney later discussed taking these precautions, but didn't explain why. It was only in Jane Mayer's book that describes the smoke alarm incident as a possible assassination attempt with anthrax. It was a crucial and defining moment of the Bush presidency as we'll come to find out. 
In a different area of D.C., what's known as Think Tank Row, Bush official and PNAC signatory Richard Pearl shares a panel with fellow PNACers James Woolsey and Michael Ledeen, along with Republicans Newt Gingrich and Israeli Knesset member Anatoly Natan Sharansky. During the talk, they express excitement at the prospects of attacking Iraq over non-existent evidence Saddam had a hand in 9-11 or the anthrax attacks. It's such an egregious display. An audience member during the Q&A exclaims the anthrax attacks are so suspicious and convenient for the neocon war agenda that he suspects they were actually carried out by a right-wing neocon. He storms out in anger while Woolsey mutters under his breath that the man is probably part of a Lyndon LaRouche operation. Later that evening, NBC discusses the weaponized nature of the anthrax and reports that the Supreme Court is also being tested for anthrax, so the judges are temporarily trying cases in an alternate location. But first, anthrax hits the Supreme Court. NBC's Pete Williams is there with the latest on the investigation. Pete, good morning. Matt, good morning to you. Over the weekend, another trace of anthrax found at yet another government agency, this time a remote facility that screens mail for the Justice Department. And for the first time since the U.S. Supreme Court moved into its own building in 1935, the justices will convene somewhere else this morning. They'll hear argument in two cases at a federal courthouse down the street while their permanent home is tested for anthrax. October 30th, 2001. A month and a half after Pentagon OSP advisor Richard Pearl claimed terrorists would target water supplies, the White House officially warns bioterrorists could target U.S. food supplies. We have to do a much better job. I am more fearful about this than anything else. One little outbreak would wipe out our whole herd. It's in our best interest to make sure that these animals are healthy and that nothing gets in our buildings. In a shocking display of self-aggrandizement and fame-horrorism, Rudy Giuliani stages yet another press conference to discuss the ongoing attacks. Uh, late this afternoon, actually early, early this evening, uh, we were notified that there, that there was a woman uh, who works at Manhattan Eye, and Ear, Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital that appeared to have uh, symptoms of anthrax. He breaks the news of Kathy Wynn testing positive for anthrax. At this point, the media doesn't refer to her by name. Published that day, AMI's publication, The National Enquirer, runs an entire print issue about the anthrax attacks, with a specific focus on their own headquarters being a target. The paper also points out the alarming coincidence of Gloria Irish, wife of Sun editor Mike Irish, not only renting an apartment to two of the hijackers, but spending up to a week showing them property leading up to the 9-11 attacks. After two days of Kathy Wynne being hospitalized, doctors finally suspect anthrax. But it was too late. Her lungs collapsed on the morning of October 31st, 2001. Kathy's friends remember her as a classy lady with impeccable style and a meticulous apartment. Despite living alone, Kathy maintained close relationships with her neighbors, who she often cooked for. Wynne was also a dedicated public servant who worked at an ear, nose, and throat hospital. Her only son died in a car crash eight years prior to her death. The FBI has speculated that she must have come in contact with mail contaminated at one of the various mail sorting facilities that processed one of the anthrax letters. 
but it is still unknown exactly how she came into contact with anthrax spores. As we come to find out later, many of the specific anthrax incidents when taken individually were left unexplained, even by the final conclusions of the investigation. No letters were ever found in the AMI building, ABC News, or CBS. So where did that anthrax come from? That same day, President Bush explains why he issued a new terror alert. Uh, yesterday, or a couple of days ago, I put the country on alert for a reason. That uh, on the one hand, while we'll go about our business of going to World Series games or shopping or traveling to Washington, D.C., I want our law enforcement officials to know we had some information that made it necessary for us to protect the United States assets, to protect those areas that might be vulnerable. And that's exactly what's taking place today. And we're also fighting a war overseas with the purpose of hunting down the evildoers and bringing them to justice. We have no other choice for our children and our grandchildren that we bring any terrorist to justice and hold those nations who harbor them, which harbor them, or feed them, or clothe them to justice as well. And the United States will prevail. During this time, Cheney was making interrogation, a.k.a. torture policy, in a secret bunker, largely separated from the rest of the White House staff, including the president. From an article written by Mark Mooney for ABC in 2008, it says, Cheney and other cabinet members took turns hunkering down in one of the several Cold War-era bunkers built to survive a nuclear attack. The bunkers, deep underground, were crammed with communications gear, Cheney would stay in what was dubbed the, quote, the commander-in-chief's suite, Mayer writes. When the vice president wasn't in the bunker, Jane Mayer claims that, quote, a sense of constant danger followed Cheney everywhere, end quote. The route was altered daily during the Veep's commute to his above-ground office. On the back seat next to him would be a duffel bag stuffed with a gas mask and a biochemical survival suit. Jane Mayer's book, The Dark Side, claims that the shock of 9-11, coupled with his anthrax scare, changed Cheney and made him an overpowering force in the administration, arguing for significantly tougher interrogation tactics. It is now November 3rd, 2001. In the morning, President Bush says the anthrax letters represent a second wave of terrorism in a national radio address. Good morning. As all Americans know, recent weeks have brought a second wave of terrorist attacks upon our country. Deadly anthrax spores sent through the U.S. mail. There's no precedent for this type of biological attack. And I'm proud of the way our law enforcement officers, our health care and postal workers, and the American people are responding in the face of this new threat. At this point in our investigation, we have identified several different letters that contained anthrax spores. Among them were the letters mailed to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle on Capitol Hill, NBC News in New York, and the New York Post newspaper. Four Americans have died as a result of these acts of terrorism. At least 13 others have developed forms of anthrax disease, either in the lungs or, less severely, on the skin. Look carefully at your mail before opening it. Tell your doctor if you believe you may have been exposed to anthrax. We do not yet know who sent the anthrax, whether it was the same terrorist who committed the attacks on September the 11th, 
or whether it was the other international or domestic terrorists. We do know that anyone who would try to infect other people with anthrax is guilty of an act of terror. We will solve these crimes, and we will punish those responsible. That night, Saturday Night Live, with Daryl Hammond, airs a strange and offensive sketch mocking Dan Rather for having an employee of his test positive for anthrax. Good evening. This is the CBS Evening Anthrax Update. Diane Rather reporting. Here are tonight's new developments. At this hour, officials of the Centers for Disease Control are confirming the presence of anthrax spores at three new locations. My desk here at CBS Nightly News, my basement weight room, and my breakfast nook. All right, this just in. CBS News now confirming that I have anthrax. Now, as you can imagine, this comes as a major disappointment to me personally. And I don't mind telling you I'm madder than a rained-on rooster about it. Three days later on November 6, 2001, Bush says in a speech from the White House, the people of my nation are now fighting this war at home. We We face face a second second wave wave of terrorist terrorist attacks attacks in the form form of deadly deadly anthrax that has been sent through the U.S. mail. Our people are responding to this new threat with alertness and calm. Our government is responding to treat the sick, provide antibiotics to those who've been exposed, and track down the guilty whether abroad or at home. And we fight abroad with our military, with the help of many nations, because the Taliban regime of Afghanistan refused to turn over the terrorists. And we're making good progress in a just cause. Our efforts are directed at terrorist and military targets because unlike our enemies, we value human life. We do not target innocent people. The next day, November 7th, Homeland Security Director Tom Ridge dismisses Bentonite as a binding agent for the anthrax in the Dashiell letter. He says the ingredient is actually silicon. This statement contradicts the leaks put out by anonymous U.S. government officials to outlets like ABC, claiming there was Bentonite found in the anthrax, which was a trademark of Saddam Hussein. Later that day, AP reports that post offices around the country close due to anthrax fears and that postal employees continue to be tested. Two days later, on November 9, 2001, Keith McQuee, another Brentwood postal worker infected with anthrax, is finally told he's well enough to go home. Five days after that, on November 14, 2001, after spending 27 days in excruciating agony, with his lungs swollen and filled with over two quarts of fluid. Brentwood postal worker Leroy Richmond's condition has drastically improved, and he's finally discharged from the hospital. Two days later, on November 16, 2001, the fourth anthrax letter is finally discovered. A letter addressed to Senator Patrick Leahy is found in the impounded mail at the State Department in Sterling, Virginia. It is allegedly lost, having supposed to arrived at the same time as the Dashiell letter, based on the postmark. Upon arrival, the letter looks suspicious to staffers. 
who reported to the Capitol Police. The FBI announced last night that they had found a second letter in the congressional mail system that was addressed to Senator Leahy. The FBI is continuing that investigation. As a result of this uh, finding, U.S. Capitol Police. This would be the final anthrax letter discovered, all appearing to be written with the same handwriting, making similar statements. Contaminated by either this or the Daschle letter. The letter addressed to Patrick Leahy had the same return address as that sent to Daschle. It read, fourth grade, Greendale School, Franklin Park, New Jersey. The contents of the letter also said, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. There's only so much, no matter how many investigations you have, that you can do. Somebody has to know something on this who hasn't come forward. I wish uh, uh, they would, because the people who have died in this are not the people the letters were addressed to. They were good, hard-working, solid people. In Oxford, Connecticut, about 10 miles south of Waterbury, 94-year-old Audley Lundgren was being visited by her niece, Shirley. Lundgren's husband had died 25 years earlier, and Audley lived alone ever since. Shirley regularly visited her, but on this particular day, she was worried about her aunt, who was being pretty stubborn about seeing a doctor while she was clearly sick. Audley finally relented, and Shirley drove her to Griffin Hospital in nearby Derby. When she arrived, doctors didn't feel her condition was alarming because she only exhibited signs of a low-grade fever and dehydration. But due to her age, they let her stay. While there, Audley laughed and joked with the doctors and staff, seemingly in good spirits. Initial blood and urine tests suggested a typical urinary tract infection. The next morning on November 17th, 2001, at Griffin Hospital in Derby, Connecticut, Dr. Lydia Barakat, one of the hospital's infectious disease specialists, assessed a bacteria culture test from 94-year-old Audelie. She thought it was Clostridium bacteria, not uncommon in elderly people. She ordered Audelie an oral Cipro and intravenous ampicillin. Still a nagging sense that what Barakat noticed under a microscope rod-like formations consistent with anthrax stuck in the back of her mind. On a hunch, she decided to ask Audelie if she received any mail or letters with powder in it, but Audelie said no, and that theory was put to rest. That same day, AP distributes video packages about the Leahy anthrax letter, intercutting footage of bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, with close-ups of microscopic anthrax and hazmat teams cleaning up contaminated sites. Even though there is no evidence connecting Al-Qaeda to the anthrax attacks, this edited-together footage is reused by hundreds of news agencies around the country. Only 24 hours later, on November 18, 2001, 94-year-old Audelie Lundgren is laying in a hospital bed, feeling increasingly short of breath. Chest x-rays and other tests show possible fluid buildup in her lungs. The next day, November 19th, 2001. PNAC director and Bush's UN ambassador, John Bolton, goes to the UN and declares in a speech, beyond Al-Qaeda, the most serious concern is Iraq. Iraq's biological weapons program remains a serious threat to international security. The United States believes that North Korea has a dedicated national effort to achieve a BW capability 
and that it has developed and produced and may have weaponized BW agents in violation of the convention. Back in Connecticut, more tests are run on Lundgren. Dr. Barricat knows for sure it's a form of bacillus. With the help of Dr. Howard Quenzel, who was part of the team that treated Kathy Wynn two weeks earlier, tries to prove that what they're actually looking at is anthrax. They're still hesitant to go public with their findings, thinking to themselves, how could an old woman in Connecticut, who lives by herself, get infected with anthrax? Regardless, they move forward with their findings the next day, on November 20th, 2001. And Audley Lundgren is officially diagnosed with anthrax. Ninety-four-year-old woman from Oxford, Connecticut, has uh, inhaled anthrax. Uh, was picked up at Griffin Hospital on Friday, and I want to commend Griffin Hospital for doing the test and determining uh, at that time that there was anthrax. And then our own Department of Public Health uh, did three tests, and then of course we went to the CDC, and they reported back to us early this morning that indeed the uh, test came back positive. Uh, we have no reason to believe that uh, Oxford, Connecticut, or this woman in particular, were uh, targets of terrorism. Uh, an investigation continues. Sadly, the doctors were too late. On November 21st, 2001, 94-year-old Audley Lundgren becomes the fifth person to die from inhalation anthrax. Been treating at Griffin Hospital for inhalation anthrax has expired. Uh, of course, our condolences go to her family, uh, her friends and neighbors who've expressed uh, concern for her well-being since uh, we began to talk to the public and the press uh, that her condition was very serious and critical. Uh, of course, there was hope, uh, but again, as Dr. Uh, Dobular and Dr. Quenzel reported that the mortality from inhalation anthrax is very high. Two days later on November 23rd, 2001, the investigation into her death begins. We have the CDC team, uh, the FBI, and our own state police are at the location of the home in Oxford, Connecticut, uh, trying to uh, make a determination or find any traces of anthrax uh, at that uh, facility. And we First, a number of tests have been conducted at the uh, victim's home, at the Seymour Post Office, and at the Wallingford uh, Postal Facility. Uh, so far, all samples have tested negative. So all we can do in this particular instance is to test the environmental samples at all the facilities, test the machines. About 400 people have been tested for anthrax. Those have all come up negative. Um, so it's still a bit of a mystery. Again, as I said uh, in the last two days, I would liken it to, uh, to New York, uh, the 61-year-old woman uh, that uh, was affected with anthrax in New York. This is a very similar circumstance. And, um, the CDC and the FBI will continue to do tests and continue to investigate the case. This brings us to the end of part one of Schrodinger's Super Patriot, the 2001 anthrax mystery. Stay tuned for part two of our investigative podcast, which comes out next month. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.